Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Cathy Weiss and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. Tuning for a Radical Philosophy live broadcast from Monash University featuring Associate Professor Karen Green, Professor Jana Thompson, Professor Lorraine Code, Dr Denise Russell and Professor Moira Gates. Here a discussion on how philosophy for women has changed over the years. A joint event between the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy Broadcast live from Monash University on Thursday the 7th of July between 3 and 4pm on 3CR, 8.55am, online and digital. Let's get radical about philosophy. You cannot share your life with a dog as I had done in Bournemouth or a cat and not know perfectly well that animals have personalities and minds and feelings by Jane Goodall. Great, thanks Jane. Yeah, so that was the announcement. Next week we're having a live broadcast from Monash University between 3 and 4 o'clock, so do tune in. And now we're going to listen to an interview with Dr Denise Russell. And I'm speaking to Dr Denise Russell about animals and ethics. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Beth. So what was it that inspired you to study animals and ethics? Well, I think, I think it was a few things. I had always had an affinity with animals. I was thinking about this last night, and I thought even when I was a very young child, I used to have these toy animals that I'd line up in my bed as I went to sleep, so cuddling them as I went to sleep. I always... I had a pet dog or a a pet cat around and so I felt a real closeness to animals and then when I started going into the sea I was really entranced by all the sea creatures and so I was you know perfectly tuned to be captured by ethical questions. I read Peter Singer in the early days the animal liberation book and I was very taken by that and then I guess in my 20s I began to think that I should be a vegetarian so I moved into vegetarianism so look it was a slow progress uh, towards taking up ethical issues but it really began in early childhood Yeah there's quite a few people who say that they're animal lovers but they don't sort of take that step or make that connection do they between loving animals and eating them No, (laughs) no it's it's certainly a paradox a great paradox. I mean, it's it's fairly easy to get people to agree that, say, battery farming chickens is, is a dreadful thing, but to actually stop eating the chickens that come from battery farms, well, you know, that's another matter. It, uh, it's very hard for people to make that change in their diet, I think. Right. Now, you've written extensively on the area of animals and ethics, and you have explored the subject of animals in the oceans. Now, fish fish have always been a controversial topic, and even being vegetarian, people constantly assume that that I eat fish, and when I say I don't, they try and argue that fish isn't even an animal. 
Oh, well, I think it's categorised as an animal, but whether you regard it as a fish as an animal or not, it's still quite clear that fish can feel pain and struggle in circumstances where, you know, they're caught on a hook or they've been injured. I read a really interesting unpublished paper yesterday that is going to be published in a journal which was arguing that even insects can feel pain so researchers are extending the idea about pain way down in the animal kingdom so certainly I think it's not really controversial today that fish feel pain so if fish feel pain what are we doing eating them if we don't want to be cruel to them there is a, a catchphrase called just because they can't scream doesn't mean it isn't murder. Yeah, that's right. It's very true. Very true. Now, you have examined the the law in relation to undersea mining. Ah, well, um, it varies according to where in the sea you're talking about. Uh, if it's within the what's called the uh, exclusive economic zone of a country that's about 200 nautical miles out to sea, then mining can take place there so long as it's within the laws of that country. If it's in the open ocean, well, you can apply to an independent body called the Seabed Authority uh, to mine in the open ocean. Uh, and sometimes those licenses are granted, sometimes they're not. And of course, there's a lot of dispute. So there's lots of dispute around the Antarctic. There's lots of dispute currently in the South China Sea with China making claims to various territories there that no doubt it wants to mine. So once you get into the area that is beyond the country's control, then there is a lot of question about whether mining should be allowed and if so, by whom. Now, there's been a long history of defending human rights, whereas sea rights are constantly overlooked. Now, you have focused on Australia and the moves by Indigenous people to assert ownership over the sea and around their lands. Um, What ideas underpin the initiatives and the attempts to block them? Well, the ideas from the... Uh, indigenous people's position are that they have an affinity with the sea which is really not significantly different than their affinity with the land. So um, there are sacred places in the land, there are places in the land that have immense historical significance but it's similarly the case with the sea. So there might be islands in the sea just off the coast or even further out that have special sacred significance there can be historical links to areas of the sea so the division in Australian law is usually that land rights may be accorded to indigenous people up to the high water mark uh, but beyond that then it's the territory of the crown so Aboriginal people can't have exclusive rights to that territory. The Northern Territory is the most interesting in this regard because the land rights legislation has been very influential there and there are big areas of land under Aboriginal control 
and that's where the cases came to extend the rights into the sea and there have been some important cases that have granted sea rights to indigenous people in Australia. Of course you've got the New Zealand history too with the Treaty of Waitangi setting up sea rights for the Maori there but instead of those being extended in the present day they are being whittled back the non-Maori people in New Zealand are trying to take back the rights that Maori people have over the seabed and fishing and so on. Yeah, well, the situation in Australia, we don't even have a treaty, do we? So we're way behind New Zealand, really, aren't we? In that respect, we are. In that respect, we are, yes, yes. You have written an article that analyses the publications resulting from the Japanese whaling research. Yes. And could you explain about the Seamark High Court Blue Mud Bay case in 2008? Beth, before we get on to that, now shall I say something about the Japanese whaling? Yeah, sure. Yep. Um, well, uh, Japan uh, hunts whales in the Southern Ocean, uh, specifically uh, in a reserve in the Southern Ocean, which Australia claims is a sanctuary. And they, they justify that by saying that they're killing the whales for scientific reasons. Now, it seemed to me that a lot of people were criticising that and saying, oh, no, it can't be science, it's not science. They're just killing those whales to eat them. But not really looking at what the Japanese were publishing from those research studies. So I decided to do an analysis over a decade of the papers that were published in peer-reviewed journals following on from those studies on the Antarctic whales. And the first thing I wanted to say about that is that these papers are being published in very reputable journals like Marine Mammal Science and Zygot, which is a highly technical scientific journal and so on. But when I looked in more detail at what these papers were saying, the research was was very limited and and seemed to be not important. The main line of research that the Japanese researchers were reporting on is IVF in minke whales, so in vitro fertilisation. Now, this is just an abstract inquiry. There's no practical direction that this could follow because of the size of minke whales. You couldn't have IVF programs. So they were using that as an excuse to say, oh, look, we're doing science. And I believe the reason why they chose that direction is in order to study... IVF in whales, you've got to, of course, capture them and kill them. You can't just observe them in the wild. So they gave themselves a scientific direction that would justify the killing of whales. However, the research papers that came out of that, I think, are not of any value or very limited value. And they certainly don't have any practical implication. Yeah, what, what was their reasons for wanting to do IVF in, in minke whales? The reason was they would give themselves a justification to kill the whales. Then once the whales were killed, they could sell them for meat. 
So that's the justification. The justification is not scientific. The justification is economic, though this is held back. This is not made absolutely public. Mm, sounds quite ridiculous. Oh, it is ridiculous, <laughs> yes. It is ridiculous. So, and could you explain about the CMARC High Court Blue Mud Bay case in 2008? Oh, yes. Well, that's going back to the Indigenous sea rights issue. Now, I have to backtrack a bit. The The first case that was related to that was a couple of years before the Croker Island case where Aboriginal people were granted use of the sea, fishing rights, uh, ability to protect their sacred sites, but they weren't granted these rights exclusively. So other people could fish the same areas who weren't Aboriginal people. Other people could drive speedboats close to sacred rocks and that sort of thing. So it was a very muted sort of success, that case. Now, what happened in Blue Mud Bay, which is on the eastern side of Arnhem Land, is that the local people put this case that they wanted exclusive rights over the intertidal areas. So that would be from the high water mark to the low water mark. Now, that might not sound much to us in Melbourne or Sydney, but up there in the Northern Territory, that can extend a long, long way because the undersea gradient can be very shallow and also the tidal difference can be up to nine metres or so. So that's a big area. What and it, This issue went through various courts and what was finally decided was that they did have exclusive rights to the area to the low water mark. So that might be a kilometre out to sea when the tide is out. Now, it was very, very strange reasoning by the courts, but what they said is that if the Aboriginal people had rights to the land, to the high water mark, then they should be given rights to the land, to the low water mark, whether there was sea on top or not. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, it's weird legal reasoning, but that was the way they made the decision. So vast areas of land or sea, whatever you like to say it is, were given to Indigenous people there in an exclusive, in an exclusive judgment. That is, they had exclusive rights over that area. It's convoluted, it and is. I, do, I do try to explain that in much more detail in my book, Who Rules the Waves, uh, but uh, it was a weird bit of legal reasoning. It was as if the courts were saying, well, look, we've got to give Aboriginal people rights to this sea territory. We don't quite know how to do it, but we'll do it this way. <laughs> very strange. It was very unexpected. I was at the, at the hearing for it, and uh, the Aboriginal people couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. It was, they were so joyous, you know. There were a group of about 70 people. They were photographed outside the High Court in Canberra. A group of about 70 people walking up this road, all terribly happy because it was such a momentous judgment. And to, to change the topic, could you explain yes. about the area of animal experimentation? Oh, yes. Well, now, this is an awful area. I mean, I hate to think about it. I hate to think that animals are experimented on at all. 
but it does go on. It's regulated in Australia by a system of rules based on what's called the three R's. That's reduction, refinement and replacement. Now, reduction's obvious that that is that you reduce the number of animals that you're needing for research, you refine the experiments so that the animals don't feel as much pain as they might otherwise, and replacement, you search for alternatives to using animals. So the guidelines are focused around those three concepts, which don't sound bad, but the problem is with the replacement criterion because researchers get encouraged into thinking that in biology, in pharmacology, in psychology, one does research on animals and one doesn't look for replacements. So although the code says that replacements should always be considered, the education that most people get in these fields is towards animal experimentation. Mm, yes, it is. So what is the ethical and legal framework governing animal experimentations within Australia? Well, it's this code of practice for the use of animals in scientific and medical research, which is put out by the ARC and the NHMRC, the Australian Research Council and National Health and Medical Research Council. They're, those two bodies are the ones that give most of the funding for animal research so they put out this code and that forms the ethical and legal basis so according to the code which is based on the three principles that i just mentioned each institution that is carrying out animal research so a university a scientific uh, institution like a csro or a hospital or something like that they have to apply to an animal ethics committee to get the all clear on doing animal experiments and the committee is supposed to apply those three principles. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and I'm speaking to Dr Denise Russell about animals and ethics. Now you did spend a short amount of time on a Animal Ethics Committee. Could you tell us about yes. your experience with this? Well, this was at the University of Sydney and I was an independent member of the committee. The committee consists of scientists who are involved in animal experimentation, somebody from an animal welfare organisation, an independent member and a vet. Sometimes it's built up with more than one person from these categories. I was an independent person coming from philosophy. I, look, I just found that it was a very depressing experience because there wasn't a willingness to talk about replacements. I mean, okay, there was a bit of discussion about refining experiments and reducing the number of animals, and sometimes research proposals were sent back for the researchers to reconsider those things. But there was no attempt, really, to talk about replacement, and I thought that was a terrific failing. Uh, there is a lot of uh, skin cells, human skin cells, and different things yes. they can use to replace animals. Aren't there live animals? Oh, yes, there's lots of different avenues now. The in vitro research is really important, using cells or using tissues 
building up stem cells, but also there's marvellous work being done with computer simulation as well. So you might feed into the computer the constitution of certain drugs and then detect the action of these drugs on an organ, you know, like a liver or a kidney. But also now there are programs where you can detect much wider than that the influence on all major bodily areas. Uh, also, the computer simulation is being used in training for surgery uh, where it can be excellent because you can build into the programs failures in the operation and then get the students to work out what they would do if the operation failed. So what avenues they would take if the operation failed. So in a way, it's, it's better than using a live animal to use the computer simulated objects. And there are other, other avenues too without using live animals. I mean, there is the argument that people put forth that we should experiment on animals because they're so much like us. But mm-hmm. then if animals are, well, we're only animals ourselves, we're human animals. If non-human yeah. animals are so much like us, uh, what are the ethics surrounding doing experiments on animals? I mean, there has been, you know, people have said, oh, well, they're not as intelligent as us. Does that mean that we could experiment on humans that weren't as intelligent as the average IQ. Yeah, yes, I think that that's that's completely true. So if they're very close to us, then there's an ethical responsibility to not uh, incur suffering to them. But also, if they're if they're not close to us, and it seems that. Even if we do share a lot of genes, there is an element of difference that can really count. Then if they're not close to us, we can't generalise to humans. I mean, we we haven't really got any advances in cancer medication for over 40 years. And the main experimentation that is being done in that area is on animals. So that should be a signal to us that maybe we're looking up the wrong area, you know, that there isn't the ability to generalise from what we can find in animals to what, what is going to work in humans. So even though there may be only small genetic differences, it seems that generalising from one species to another is highly problematic. It's even been found out now that generalising within species can be problematic. So generalising across species, much, much more so. And drugs, of course, that have been found to be harmless in animals have, in humans, often been found to be uh, very bad, maybe even kill people, like um, drugs for uh, certain drugs that were invented for arthritis. Thalidomide was given to pregnant women, caused birth defects, and so on. So, and also drugs that seem to be innocuous in humans can be harmful to animals. So you can't give Aspro to cats because that can be very harmful to them. Yet Aspro in humans, at least in low doses, seems to be relatively okay. It's a very good point. I mean, I think that people or doctors should be looking at people's living environment when it comes to cancer. I went to an open house a few weeks back and I wasn't able to go into the house because of the amount of air fresheners and 
perfume and chemical yeah. base things that they had in the house and I had to stand yeah. outside and peer through the window and I said to the yeah. real estate agent, look, I'm not able to go and look in there because I yeah. have chemical sensitivities and she said to yeah. me, she paused for a while and then she said, well... She said, I'll tell you something. Last year I was diagnosed with cancer and my doctor sat down with me and said, now let's have a look at your living environment. And she said that she had lots of chemicals within her home. She even had those plug-in yeah. air fresheners. She said, you yeah. know, oh, they're advertised on TV all the time. I thought that they, they were fine, they were safe. Yeah. And she said yeah. once she eliminated all of those from her living environment yeah. and yeah. Uh, she's in remission now. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. And that was a doctor um, who who did that, which is excellent because doctors generally just you know, throw their hands up in the air and say, "Oh, we don't know. Have this, have this chemotherapy, have this radiotherapy. We don't know how you got this." So that that's really good that, that they had been looking at the chemicals in the environment. Also, just back to the eating issue, it's been found that bacon is a really strong carcinogen. So, you know, you can have people who have eggs and bacon all their life get cancer and also throw their hands up in the air and say, why, why me? <laughs> mm, that, that's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, well, another, another friend of mine quite a few years back, she had cancer and the doctor told her stop eating meat. And she said, Good, well, yeah. she said, well, I can't give up everything I like. And, and she died within eight months. Yeah, and it was a shame yeah. because she did have a young child and I thought, well, oh, you know, if she had have yeah. had have taken that advice, you know, yeah. so there's there's a, there's a there's a lot of a lot of cancers. I know bowel cancer is is very rare amongst vegetarians. So yeah, I think that we right. need to look at our living environment and also yeah. look at our look at our diet, not just from a yeah. an an ethical point of view for the animals, but an ethical point yeah. of view for our own well being. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for being on the program today. Oh, that's fine, Beth. It was a pleasure. And I've been speaking to Dr. Denise Russell about animals and ethics. And that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed the program and tune in next week at 3 o'clock for our live broadcast from Monash University. Tune in for a Radical Philosophy live broadcast from Monash University Featuring Associate Professor Karen Green, Professor Jana Thompson, Professor Lorraine Code, Dr. Denise Russell and Professor Moira Gates. Here a discussion on how philosophy for women has changed over the years. A joint event between the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy. Broadcast live from Monash University on Thursday the 7th of July between 3 and 4pm on 3CR 8.55am online and digital. Let's get radical about philosophy.